So it's about eight o'clock now, so I think we can begin. And one thing which I always like talking about during retreats, I haven't talked about yet, I talked a lot about the hindrances and deep meditations, inspiring stuff, and even not so deep meditations. Uh, but there's also the thing which I haven't mentioned much at all yet about the practice of insight, of understanding. It's one thing to get very still and very peaceful, but then that will fade away. And then you have to do more things. and You lose your stillness, not all of it, but then the point of stillness is to give you that clarity of mind the absence of the five hindrances. And then when those five hindrances are absent, it's pretty easy to see what's going on in life. You don't just see beautiful bamboo when it's just a a dry, dusty uh, clump of bamboo uh, planted in the wrong place. You see more interesting insights into the nature of life. And one which will just come up, just comes into my head, is even the nature of life and death. You know, what's the purpose of being of this life? When you have what we call the meaning of life, so I'm going to begin with a little story about the meaning of life. Many pleasant things happen to you, many unpleasant things happen to you in life. And how many times have you thought, why me? Once there was uh, this gentleman came to see the Buddha and asked, you know, just why is it I work really hard, but still, you know, my enterprises don't make much money. I really work hard, but, you know, just things don't really work out. And these other people, they hardly do any work at all, and they get rich. You know, work day in, day out, day in, day out, and they just go and buy a lottery number and they win a fortune. Or they play a slot machine like Ayakema and they don't need the money and they get everything. <laughs> Why? And that is when uh, the Buddha gave this wonderful simile. The karmic causes in your past life. Why that your business enterprises work well in this life. Do you want to know that? Now, don't get reborn. Don't think about the next life. But then he also asked, why is it, why is it that some people are beautiful while other people are just ugly? doesn't matter how many times you go for facial reconstruction or go to a spa or just you know, try and get someone to, to make you look more attractive, still you're ugly. <laughs> and many of you may remember me telling this story. One of the first times I told it was in Singapore in front of a large audience and I got really strong complaints afterwards. There was one woman came up to me and said, Ajahn Brahm, why did you say ugly when you were looking at me? I had to be looking at somebody, so you may have noticed when I said the word ugly, I looked at the floor. I trained myself to do that now. <laughs> and it's the same, you know, when you say beautiful, I look at the floor so people don't get the wrong idea. It's very difficult being a monk. <laughs> I, I don't mind telling you my secrets, not really secrets. I remember at Nolamara one day, so this lady came up to me and said, yeah, I really like you, Ajahn Brahm, you're so wise and kind. She said, do you always want to be a monk? And I said, yes. Well, I said, well, you know, if you change your mind, here's my number. <laughs> that is true, exactly as... <laughs> That's again what she said, oh my God. <laughs> it was so funny, I love telling people that story. And so that's many years ago. I think I've lost her number, I don't know where it is. 
the life of a monk. But anyway, so Buddha gave the answer. But the most important uh, question in this little story was if you want to be intelligent in, in your next life and even in this life, what's the cause of intelligence? And that was asking questions. And I love that statement because it was directly encouraging you and everybody. If there's something you don't understand, something doesn't make sense, ask the question about it. You may not get the total answer the first time. When you ask questions and ask questions and ask questions, you'll find out more. And the more you try and inquire, the more intelligent you will become, the more you will learn. And that's a beautiful answer, and that's one of the reasons why I really try hard to make enough time in the evenings for your question time, or for even personal questions during the interviews. But even the interview time, you know, sometimes the person comes for the interview, and it's quite private, and then they ask their questions, and the next person comes for their interview, and they ask the same question. And then the third person, here we go again. <laughs> because each one of you, you sometimes think that you're an individual person, that you've had this experience which no one else shares. A lot of us share the same experience. Maybe in like different formats, but pretty much the same. And so in the question time, if you ask the question there, and it is pretty much anonymous when you write it on a piece of paper, and I said I threatened that sometimes I will check your handwriting and maybe fingerprints and find out <laughs> who wrote it. <laughs> but of course, that's only a joke. I would never do that. If you say it's going to be anonymous, it has to be anonymous. But anyhow, that sometimes, because the questions repeat again and again and again and again and again, sometimes it's really wonderful to ask it in public, so everybody can hear the answers. But nevertheless, you just need to encourage everyone to be able to ask those questions. Because that's important for wisdom. Now asking the question is also where insight arises. You get an experience, and the places where you get real nice insight is just when those ex experiences they're unexpected. They kind of don't fit what you thought the past should be and how it should be. And when it's a bit strange, please, please, you know, don't be afraid. That's one of the things which I loved about my early life, doing things like psychic research. You know, things which many people are afraid of. And I wondered, why are people afraid of things like ghosts? Now, all the real ghost stories, which you know, I've seen, heard, known, are beautiful. And a good example of that, I think I did I tell you about the, it's not a joke, this is true, is uh, the lady in Perth uh, whose dog died. Not yet. No, not yet, okay. So anyway, many people these days, they live alone. They are either separated from their partner or their partner dies. And this was one such lady, lived alone in a nice house over in Rolystone. And she had a dog, and the dog was just you know, like her only family. She loved that dog. And they would go for a walk every day, two walks, one in the morning, one in the evening, in the forest close by. And she told me this personally, that when she was in the forest, she was playing with the dog, and when she got back home, she found she'd lost her fingering. It wasn't particularly expensive, but it had an emotional value. So she went straight back to where she was playing around with the dog in the forest, trying to look for it, could not find it. Now how can you find like a fingering in a forest? There's just too many twigs and leaves and other forest um, uh, stuff on the ground. She looked and looked and looked and looked and looked with her dog, 
couldn't find it anywhere, so she gave it up. And her attention was taken to somewhere else later on when her dog got sick. They take it to the vet, but the vet you know, can't do anything. It was an old dog, and so the dog eventually passed away. It's only a dog, but my goodness, you love that dog like a partner or like a child. And so she grieved for that dog, and she told me, honestly, in her house, she'd be walking in the house, going from one room to another room, and she would hear her dog barking inside the house. And she knew the sound of her dog. See, it wasn't imagination, her dog was barking. And she'd run to that room, open the door, but as soon as they opened the door, the barking stopped, and she couldn't see the dog at all. She said that happened so many times, and she was kind of longing just to have one last look at her dog. And then one day, she was by the front entrance of her house, and she heard the dog barking just outside. She was so close, she thought, I must see it this time. She quickly opened the door, the front door of her house. She never saw the dog. But in the middle of the welcome mat was her finger ring. The dog had found the ring for her. And that was the last time she heard the sound of her dog's bark. It's kind of, to me, I thought that was really beautiful. The dog was making sure that it uh, did some service you know, for the, uh, uh, the person the dog loved. Uh, the dog was there just when she lost her ring. The dog wanted to make sure it could be found. The real ghost stories are really sweet. And that's one of the reasons why I can't understand why people are afraid of such things. They're always just really, 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 really kind. Do you agree with me? No. Would you like to see a ghost? Would you like to dream of a ghost? Have I told you the story of the tsunami ghost? Not yet. This was again a true story happened in Thailand because you know, there was many, many deaths around the island of Phuket. Remember when we used to go on retreats there? And I remember one day they you know, took us to some of these um, boats which were just grounded. I remember seeing one of those boats in, in Aceh province. The Apasico group took me up there. And this huge boat and the tsunami wave had just carried it a long way, about a kilometer from the, 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 the beach. And it was just stranded in the middle of basically a suburb, a huge boat. Knows how powerful the wave was. But anyway, when the wave struck the day after, there was a woman in the town of Grabi in Thailand. That's just north of Phuket. And when she was sleeping one night, she had a dream of a ghost. I didn't tell the story here yet? Not here, okay. It's a scary start to this story, but in the end it's just a beautiful ending. And in the dream she saw this English girl uh, in a bikini, but the bikini was all torn and, torn, and her skin was all lacerated, you know, blood everywhere. And she came to this uh, Thai lady in the dream, saying, I'm dead, I'm dead, help me, help me. Would you be scared? Please don't be. Some being wants some assistance, some help. You should always give it. And anyway, in the dream, you know, she didn't sort of turn over or she was interested, this uh, Thai lady. And said, you know, basically she listened. And the 
English girl said she was on PP Island, which is just off the coast of Phuket, when the big wave came and she was killed. And she said, my mobile phone is on the bottom of the ocean right now. And I'm in <coughs> being carried into one of the morgues in one of the temples in Phuket Island. And she said, my mother is trying to contact me. My mobile phone will be ringing if I was alive. But, she said, I'm dead. Can you please contact my mother? Tell her I'm dead and tell her, please don't come to Phuket yet. I'm going to ask you, this Thai lady, can you please arrange my funeral service? A cremation, a Buddhist cremation. She wasn't Buddhist, but she'd been in the land, so it's a local custom. Arrange the Buddhist uh, cremation, and then call my mother, she can collect my ashes. I just don't want her to see me just all cut up and all or bruised and injured like this. And then the, the ghost gave this woman some numbers. And that's when she woke up. And it's one of those dreams where you remember everything. Now, I'm going to run ahead a little bit. I come, sometimes wondered, why did that ghost choose her? It was in Grabi, so quite away from Phuket. But then the answer, I reckon, was that she was married to an Englishman. I think the ghost realised that this is the most convenient way to get a message to her mother. So she woke up, her husband, in the middle of the night, said exactly what had happened, and the first thing the husband noticed, that that number was a legitimate London telephone number. So he said to her, give it a call. If you know the Thai characteristics, there's no way that the wife would call. She said, no way, you call. <laughs> the wife was too scared. <coughs> but anyway, the husband called that number. It was legitimate. It was an English London telephone number. The person who answered it was the mother of this girl. It was absolutely true. And so the, the mother cried, but she said, I knew my daughter was dead. And she said, if that's what she said, I think that's, I can understand why she said that. Please, you have my permission to arrange the funeral service for her. And when it's done, please give me another call and I'll get the first flight uh, to Phuket to collect the ashes. So the next, after, in the morning, after breakfast, they drove Know, to uh, Phuket. They had the name from the girl in the dream of the morgue and her name. And they went into the, um, the temple. And when they went into the temple, where the, it was a temporary morgue, uh, they quickly found the girl. She looked exactly like she saw in a dream. And they got permission because it, I can't figure out how they can get permission so quickly. I think there were so many dead people they bent so many rules and laws and arranged a funeral for this uh, deceased London girl pretty quickly. And once the funeral was over, uh, they rang uh, the girl's mother in London. She came on the next available flight to Phuket. And they met at the airport, you know, embraced, cried, and they handed over her daughter's ashes. Really nice act to do. But of course... That's only half the story. <laughs> the next half of the story was that when they returned to Guabi, she had another dream, clear as before. Not so much as hazy. She saw the girl again. But this time, no cuts and bruises. It was like she had been to a spa. Just her skin was nice and clean and her dress, this beautiful white dress she was wearing and, and like she'd gone to the hairdressers, her hair wasn't tangled by the, the force of the tsunami. She looked like you know, she was going out to a party or something. 
And she smiled at them and said, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you've done for me. Here are some more numbers. <laughs> and the husband could not recognise those numbers as a, as a phone number, but she recognised them. <laughs> Lottery number. And they won. Big prize. That's why it got in the newspapers and the story got around. Have you got enough money in your life where you can do some more? So if ever you do see a ghost anywhere, please don't run away. Go up to that ghost and ask how you can help. And then, before you run away, ask the ghost for some lottery numbers. <laughs> and then you can run away. <laughs> and so because you heard it here, the BSWA gets 10%. <laughs> no, we don't want anything. But all the time, there's these ghost stories that, you know, if you're kind to animals, kind to even ghosts, kind to anything, they will always look after you. And that's one of the simple insights which helps you in life. You know, just the power of just kindness. But it has to be uh, legitimate, real, not just play-acting whoever you are kind to, that sometimes it turns around, they, they come back and just, they help you. This, this other Buddhist, you know, who was, uh, he got separated from his partner, but they had this big dog. I think it was uh, one of these dogs who was a pedigree dog. And there weren't that many around here in Western Australia, but he knew that once he got separated and divorced, he really didn't have the means to look after the dog. So he advertised if there's anybody else who had a similar breed and they could have this dog for free as long as they would look after it. And he found this old woman who had a similar dog and uh, she agreed to look after it. She had two of these uh, pedigree dogs and that's how they became friends. And she was an elderly lady. She couldn't drive, he could drive. And so she made that, he made the offer to her, look, you know, I run my own small business. If ever you need to have a lift to go somewhere, just give me a call and I'll take you uh, into town to go to the dentist or the doctors. And for over a year, he cared for her that way, just being available for her. Sometimes it's okay to call a, a taxi, but sometimes they're late or they don't come. But you know, he was just so reliable. And after taking her to, to doctors and dentists and, and the social security and stuff like that, one day she asked, I need to go into the center of Perth today. Can you take me? And he said, okay, I can do that. So he picked her up and took her to the center of Perth. And he said, can you come into the office with me because I need you to be with me. Said, oh, okay. And when they went into the office, they found it was a lawyer's office. And in the lawyer's office, he found out why she wanted him with him, <laughs> with her. He said, uh, I don't have any other dependents in my life, and so I'm going to bequeath everything I own to you. So he told me, when he told me this, I thought, wow. He'd left, she had left him with this huge inheritance. And he said all he did was be kind for a while. And he inherited so much money, he never needed to work again. So if anybody ever asks you, you can retire when you're young. You don't have to work in Wollongong anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like stories like that because people do these things not expecting anything back. I mean, it's amazing just the return for acts of good karma. I've seen that so many times, which is why, yeah, it's an insight, it's what should happen, and often it's what does happen. And it's beautiful to see that. So, this is insights which are powerful, they're interesting. 
and they teach you something, you know, from your own life about what the meaning of this life is. To be kind and caring. And that's why just all of those prisoners in jail I looked after for so many years. Every now and again you meet them. And every now and again they come up and say anything you need. If ever we have a big event, I remember once we had this big event uh, in St. George's Cathedral. I got to know the, the dean in that cathedral. We became good friends and he said, you give good talks. Why don't you come and give a talk in the cathedral? He was the dean, so he was in charge of that. So I'm a Buddhist, I'm not an Anglican. So it doesn't matter. So we had this, this uh, I gave the sermon, the talk, out of four Anglican Eucharist. And he said he knew what he was saying. He said he did his research for the first time in 2,000 years that a non-Anglican had given the sermon in a, a full Eucharist. Not even a Catholic had done that. And so that was in the news. I remember when it was in the news because I was interviewed on the live t news channel and I, I made a mistake of bringing Ajahn Brahmali with me. He wasn't allowed to be interviewed because it's just myself, but he was looking in the mirror, through the mirror at me. And as I was trying to compose myself to answer all the questions, he was going, <laughs> <laughs> He was. <laughs> trying to upset me. <laughs> you ask him this evening. I managed to keep it together, but only just. <laughs> I don't mind, it's nice like teasing each other. But anyway, when it came to the actual event, it was just so easy just to give a nice sermon, a talk like I always do, and trying to sort of bring everybody together. But there was a lot of my friends, ex-prisoners, ex-police officers who said, I think we need to be there because of security. Now if ever you want a security guard, get some of these ex-prisoners. They're huge. And they have, <laughs> they know how to look after you. Sometimes you just need to look at someone who's trying to attack you. And the one who's trying to attack you will back off because they thought that maybe Buddhist monk breaking the traditions, giving a talk in an Anglican cathedral, that might sort of upset a few people. Yeah. It didn't, but it was, it was still nice to see them there. You can always have the benefit of some of these people. There was this really, uh, this really um, very wealthy man years ago. I don't know, do you remember Alan Bond? Yeah. Alan Bond, yeah. He was, still had quite a few million, and he was uh, incarcerated in Carnot Prison Farm. So I thought to actually invite him, once he was released, to be the treasurer of our Buddhist society. <laughs> I'm sure he can raise funds, <laughs> raise funds better than anybody else. The other committee wouldn't allow me. <laughs> anyway, uh, where am I going with this? Yeah, the, those are just insights into living your life. And the other insights, I mentioned to you here the, the floor. You know, when we couldn't finish it in time because the builders wouldn't come, it was a public holiday, the monks did it. Have you seen the mistake? You haven't? Oh, thank you. Just in the corner over there. You know these um, uh, fancy bits with the, f the grapes or whatever it is, else is on it? In the corner, it doesn't actually match. Can you see it? Yeah, yeah you see it now. <laughs> it's not perfect. Where are those two, two bricks in the wall? Are there two bricks in the wall? I told a few people where they are. It's not in this uh, complex. That's in Bodhinyana Monastery. I did locate them. They're in the toilet block in the monks section. 
please, Eileen, don't take people down there to see. <laughs> there might be a monk in the, in the cubicle <laughs> and you'll never be able to come back to Perth. <laughs> That's where they are. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that. Those two bad bricks, I thought they were really important at first, but after many years, I just forgot what they were. They weren't important anymore. But anyway, the reason I say that, and there's a mistake over there, none of you have noticed it. Ajahn Santuti noticed it straight away, obviously because he was responsible for it. The insights about why, if you did it, it's really important. If other people did it, you think, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. It's okay, mistakes happen. And then what it does, I'd rather have the monks do that and make a mistake, and rip it up and do it again and make it perfect. Now ah, that's good. Now, you've heard my talks before. That's why, <laughs> that's why if you are a real builder and you make a mistake, be careful if you get a new home made or get it renovated, sometimes you will see those mistakes and you'll tell the builder, Look, that's not level, that's all over the place. If that's a smart builder, especially if he's heard any of my talks, he will reply to you, ma'am, that's a feature. It's the only house in the whole of Perth with that feature. It makes it unique. <laughs> they did make a mistake, they're just lying through their teeth. But this is just a nice way of looking at it. When things go wrong in life, it's a feature. In other words, it's something which differentiates it from anything else. So even when a person gets sick, how many of you have never been sick in your life? May I assume that every one of you has been ill from time to time? Now imagine if it was a case that you were never ill. Then never once did you get a sickness or get a fever. You know one thing, I can put my hand up. So far I've never broken a bone in my body. I don't know why, I fell off ladders. You know, I just fell off my motorbike a few times, scraped a bit of skin off me. But I've never actually broken a bone, which is weird. Especially I remember when falling off a ladder. It was a long way down. I remember the first time I almost fell off a ladder as a monk in Thailand. And I was cleaning the gutters. The ladder slipped. I was just hanging on for dear life and shouted help. And all the monks said, <laughs> They all just looked like dummies. Fortunately, one monk ran over to save me. Thank goodness. I don't know why people do that. You really need help, but you can't get a freeze. <laughs> but anyway, uh, even though I've never broke, broken a bone, I have had other sicknesses. So if you've never had a sickness, is that something un unusual? If you'd always been healthy? If you had never had a sickness, you'd be such a weird case that the hospitals would invite you in and do tests on you. Lots of tests. How come you're immune to sickness? So when I say that, I say, if you are always healthy, perfect health, there's something very wrong with you. You're not normal. So because of that, I always ask you, when you do go get sick, Please, when you see the doctors, you should always say, Doctor, there's something right with me. I'm sick again. Now that's not a, just a joke. If you say there's something right with me, I'm sick again. It takes away this, this negativity, this discrimination against sickness. So much so that some people get sick and sick and sick and sick and they never go and see the doctor, which means by the time the doctor sees them, it's a bit too late.
somehow we think that it's wrong to be sick. That doesn't make any sense. If you're sick, you're sick. So this is one way of non-discrimination against illness and sickness. It also means you can admit you may have a COVID or you may have dengue. We may have, you know what monks have? Apparently they had this monkey sickness, monkey virus. Is that right? That's one of the symptoms. (laughs) We never had that at all. But nevertheless, we don't think that being sick is being wrong. And that actually changes your whole way of looking at illnesses. You kind of understand them, accept them, work with them and try and get rid of them. It's okay to be sick. So it's because... I know when I was young, I was often sick. I think it's those fevers you had when you were young uh, increase the immune system when I'm uh, as old as I am now. You know how old I really am? Can we say 72? No, no. Not 51, no. <laughs> I'm just quickly working it out. 867. I'm not lying to you. I'm a monk, I must always tell the truth. I'm 867. Shush! (laughs) Now that's really impressive. You see a monk, 867, you think, wow. That's cool, that's impressive. <laughs> but I think the people I talk to these days are too smart. They figure it out straight away. 867 months. When I tell that to kids who come here, why do you have to actually give your age in years? Just why not do it months, be different? And I tell the kids that that means, how old are you? You're 12. No, you're not. You're 144. You don't have to go to school anymore. You can drive a car. And they say, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But we don't always have to do things exactly the same way. And that makes life a bit of interest when you do things a little bit differently. But the most important thing is that we're not trying to think that perfection is just in this normal realm of always being healthy. Sometimes being sick is like part of life. It's your body telling you, you know, that you need to rest and care for something. And that also means the insight that sometimes, I mentioned to you, you before, sometimes when I have some kind of sickness in me, my first therapy is not to ring up the doctor. My first therapy is just go into my room, my cave, and meditate. And it's amazing things happen. The last major sickness which I had, it wasn't a major sickness, but it was uh, an acute sickness. I was eating food at, uh, at Dhammalokas, no, sorry, uh, here in, uh, in Bodhinyana. And though sometimes I laughed too much and I laughed while I was swallowing, which is the wrong thing to do because the food got stuck, stuck in my esophagus. I couldn't swallow, I couldn't uh, make it come up. I could still talk, but I was stuck. And when every time I tried to take a glass of water, it just the water came up again. I even tried to have a cup of tea with condensed milk, thinking, I like that so much, surely that will find a way, <laughs> way through. <laughs> but that too just came straight out. So I was stuck there, not being able to, to drink, not being able to swallow. What would you do? Jump. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, of course what I did, I didn't jump, I just meditated. And it took a bit of a while, I must admit, it was only just you know, in the wee hours of the morning that the meditation just started to really get, get deep. What happens when you meditate? 
the whole body relaxes, as well as the mind. When the body relaxes, I figured out just, you know, the, uh, the irritation of your throat being stuck and the body was overreaction, overreacting, probably some of the muscles swelled in my throat and made it even more tough to get that food out. But then because I uh, relaxed so much, even the muscles relaxed. And as the muscles relaxed, of course, then the food can come out. So it came out. I know it's due to meditation, because as soon as the food came out, I was really, really dehydrated, because I hadn't been able to drink at all. And then I had just a, a glass of water. And this is the most delicious glass of water I've ever drunk. The water was just so sweet and cool. It's nothing to do with the water, but everything to do with like the samadhi, which I just came out of. You know, that's, this is what happens. Whatever you can see or experience, you know, in deep after deep meditation, everything becomes gorgeous. And I've drank lots of water since, and never water so sweet. It's just after getting some nice deep meditation. Anyway, so for me, every time which you know, I have a sickness, I just love trying to deal with it in different ways, and not normal ways, through meditation ways. I'm amazed just how the attitude to relax the body and let the body sort it out works. Many people here, I said, I think last night even, find your body moving. If it does, let it. Your body has its own way of healing things. One of those ways of healing things, if you've got some virus inside of you which shouldn't be there, the body gets hot. Don't try and suppress a fever. That's the way that the, the body actually deals with fevers and heals it. There was one of our monks, years ago, he had stomach ulcers, so his tummy was always in pain. He went to see the doctor, the doctor said, well, you have to eat in the evening. It's just only eating you know, in the morning time was one of the big causes of that. He said, but I'm a monk. So he went to see Ajahn Chah, and Ajahn Chah said, typical Ajahn Chah, it's better to die than break your precepts. Not really sure what you said. And so he had enough confidence, he actually followed that advice. He didn't die, but he kept his precepts. And then a short while later, he was one of the other monks who had that scrub typhus. When he had scrub typhus, his fever was so high that that cured the bacteria in his tummy as well. He got double blessing. And he was fine afterwards. Sometimes these things, again, work in really weird ways. But anyway, you can see, I hope, the basis of these little stories is that don't be afraid. No trust in the Dhamma. Usually you're fine when you trust in the Dhamma. And you trust in just relaxing, letting the body often heal itself. But of course, I've just been talking about sort of physical benefits, physical insights. The many of you here were expecting when I talked about insights into insights into things like anicca and dukkha anatta and non-self and the meaning of life and other stuff. And I should get on to that now. And already, you know, sometimes, you know, I pointed out, I hope, that anicca, we always think that anicca is easy to understand. That's why we never understand it fully. It really is important I should go deeply into it, see it more fully. And sometimes that is kind of shocking, but it's true, it's real. Your understanding gets even more profound. Even dukkha, suffering, what is that? Suffering. And there will come a time when you get into some really nice deep meditation and it's blissful. And you understand why. That f for a good example, just that first jhana, 
beautiful state of mind, and you'd you know, rather not leave. And when you come out afterwards, not while you're in there, you, you never try to develop insight while you're in a deep meditation, that just disturbs it. And it's very hard to do anyway, within. But as you come out afterwards, you've just been in this wonderful state of mind, and I can't see how anybody could not ask, what the heck was that? That was amazing. But I would also suggest to you that when you look at what that experience was like, don't just try and investigate or explore what that state was. Just answer the question of what was missing. Don't ask what was there, ask what wasn't there, what vanished. And that's where you get the best insights. And if you do achieve a first jhana, you ask what was missing, and you see it's the the body and the five senses. They're totally gone and you're fully aware. And then it's pretty easy to see that this is what it's like when your body vanishes, disappears, when you die. That kind of strikes you. And if you've had a real first jhana and you've understood it, you'll never again be afraid of death. You kind of know what it's like when the five senses disappear. Beautiful. And you realize that this body and five senses is like a burden, an irritation. You have to carry it through your life. You use it, you learn from it, you gain incredible understanding and wisdom, you help other people through it, you understand what it's like. And that gives you the sense of understanding, wisdom, but it also takes away the fear of death. Already I said about the beautiful light, the nimitta, that happens naturally when a person dies. So if you go back to where you came from, after this retreat is finished, you said, well, what did you learn? You learned how to die and not be afraid. Anybody who has any understanding, sometimes people get this understanding from uh, that regression therapy. People have, all, people have like near-death experiences. I never forget a BBC documentary And this lady in this documentary, she was saying that how she had many, many operations and eventually she died at last. And after she died, she went sort of in some spirit realm and she was just blissing out just how peaceful it was not having this achy, old, creaky, old body. If you want to know how creaky the body does become when you get to be 847 or whatever I said. <laughs> Have a look at me when I get up from the, the bench here. In Thailand, they have a special name in the villages for old people. Now, the name for a female is a mare and male poor. But if they're a female old person, they call them male oi. A male old person, poor oi. And they say, why? When they get up, they go, oi. (laughs) (laughs) Oi. (laughs) So I'm an oi. (laughs) This is just a nature of life when you get old. But anyway, this lady, no, she was free of that. So she was having a wonderful time. Ah, free at last. She felt great having died. And that's when she met this spirit. who said, you're not supposed to die yet. You've got to go back. I know I'm not going back, but you must. No way. I know some like English old people and they like that. You know, like Margaret Thatcher. You know, what she said about her cabinet ministers. Some cabinet ministers you argue down, some you wear down, 
the others you grind down. <laughs> it's scary. And so this was a woman like that, she was not going to take any rubbish from anybody. So she told the spirit to go and get lost. The spirit said, no, you've got to go back. I don't want to, but you have to. No. And apparently she said, somehow or other the spirit grabbed her and threw her back into her body. And that's when the, uh, that's when the doctor said, oh, we've we saved her, we've saved her. That's not what she thought. <laughs> and in the interview though, what really made it unforgettable for me, that she was in front of the camera saying, now, when I die next time, when I die properly, the first thing I'm going to do is find that spirit. <laughs> and I've been planning all the terrible things I'm going to do to him. What he did to me was unforgivable. She wanted revenge on the psychic plane and she was going to get it. This wasn't a comedy series, but I thought it really was. I was laughing my head off. But anyway, it just emphasized the point that uh, sometimes, what is dukkha? Sometimes we think that just to be alive is happiness. But actually being free from that can sometimes be enormous happiness. Again, the best simile is like the, uh, the prison. People in prison, they get used to that. That's one of the reasons why they're so used to it that when they get uh, the end of their sentence, they don't want to leave. They want to go back again. Even though they're facing freedom, they'd rather have servitude. It reminds me of a story. I know I haven't told this for a while because I'm amazed I don't tell some of these really nice stories. This is about these two monks. They were really best friends. And they lived together for and all their monastic life and eventually they both died. And one of them, once they had passed away, was reborn in one of these heaven's realms. And after enjoying himself for a few days, then he started to think of his friend. Where's my friend? I know he died about the same time. He must be somewhere. So he searched through all the heaven realms, because these heavenly beings, devas, have powers. He searched through all the heavenly realms and couldn't find his friend anywhere. So he said, oh my goodness, ah, my friend must have been reborn as a human being. That's a very fortunate rebirth. So he looked through the human realm, couldn't find his friend anywhere. Oh my goodness, I know he's very friendly to little furry animals like dogs and cats. Maybe he's been reborn as a cat. So he looked in the realm of the animals and still couldn't find his friend. He said, oh my goodness, he has been reborn as something terrible like an insect or something. And he searched through that realm as well and finally found him. His best friend from the life before had been reborn as a worm in a pile of cow dung. That's a pretty unfortunate rebirth. As a worm in the pile of a cow, S-H-I-T. And so he thought, I can't allow this. So he went down outside the pile of cow poo and called out, worm, worm. And the little worm poked his head out from the, the stinking pile of cow poo. And the heavenly being said, we used to be friends in our previous life. We were both monks together. I don't know what you've done to get reborn in this part of Kalpu, but it doesn't matter. I can take you up to heaven with me. And the little worm said, it's a heaven, where's that? What's that? And he described the delights and the purity of heaven. And the worm said, look, one thing, is there any Kalpu in heaven? Cow poo in heaven? Of course not. It's much cleaner than that. And so the worm said, I don't want to go. I like my cow poo. Imagine for a little worm, it's warm, it's fragrant, and it's his, it's his source of food. He said, all my food is here, it's warm, it's safe and fragrant. I'm not going. 
What food do you like most of all? Durian. What? Durian. Durian. Imagine you were born as a little bug in a, in a durian fruit. Delicious smell, nice and warm. You can eat as much durian as you ever want, morning, evening and night time. Would you be happy? <laughs> be careful. <laughs> you know what happened to that story in... Which university was it? I think it was Sydney University, wasn't it? Or Melbourne? That there was a report that there was a terrorist attack on one of the, the buildings in the university. And so they, they got the, the terrorist squad to investigate and they found out it was a gas attack. So they evacuated the whole building, cordoned it off, and they got all these people in highly trained people in hazmat suits, you know, with the oxygen in the back, you know, and breathing apparatus, because they thought it was a toxic gas attack. And they <laughs> they followed the the gas to its source. And it was in one of the lockers in the student place where they stored things. And they forced open this locker and they found it wasn't a canister of gas, it was an old durian which had been left there by the students. Did you see that in Singapore? The university which had been closed down because of a, an attack of Julian. <laughs> Sometimes it can be very stinky. But anyhow, so being reborn in a part of Julian. This worm was reborn in a part of Kalpu. And he wouldn't go to heaven. If that was you, would you go to a heaven realm? Or prefer your car, your pile of poo. You can imagine like a worm. So anyway, <laughs> the heavenly being, this friendship, kindness, you're, you're willing to sacrifice so much for kindness, out of kindness. So he put his, his divine angelic hand into the cow poo to try and pull out the worm. He got hold of the worm, but the worm was actually smeared with slime. So when he tried to pull out the worm, the worm would wiggle and writhe and shout out, I'm being worm-napped, I'm being worm-napped. <laughs> <laughs> no one came to help him, but anyway, he kept on slipping away. When I told that story, that was the last story, if you remember, in, I think, opening the door of your heart. And I always made sure there was 108 stories in there. And just to make the point, I said in this last story, and open the door of your heart, that you are the worm in the pile of dung. And 108 times I've been trying to pull you out <laughs> from your pile of poo, whatever that pile of poo is. You don't want to go. So the heavenly being had to leave the worm to his pile of dung. The worm was happy. And it's because of that. Any Indonesians here? Oh, okay, you know that. The, the, the books, the translation of Opening the Door of Your Heart, what's the title? What does Chaching mean? Worm. Worm. <laughs> In Indonesia, they use that story you know, for all the books. And whenever I go to Indonesia, my nickname over there is Guru Chaching. <laughs> The teacher of the worms. <laughs> I kind of like that. But they also gave me some other nicknames as well. One of those other nicknames was Ajan Donut. Ajan Donut. You know why they call me Donut? They say for three reasons. First, I'm sweet. <laughs> Second, I'm round. And the third, like a donut, I'm holy. <laughs> They've got a hole in the center of a donut. I thought it was quite sweet. So anyhow, if somebody calls you a funny name, do you get offended? Why not enjoy the humor as well? So someone calls me funny names, 
This is really funny, I'll let each one of you know. Just like those Catholic schoolgirls in Perth, gave a talk in their college, and the next day I happened to see them just by accident. They said, oh, it's, you gave a talk in our school yesterday. I said, yeah. And said, you remember me? I said, oh, we'll, we'll never ever forget you. And I was actually really um, appreciated that statement. You never forget me? I said, how can you ever forget someone called Ajahn Bra? <laughs> I'm not making that up, that's what they said. Of course, I laughed my head off. It is an M on the end. <laughs> but if you want to remember my name, it's Ajahn Female Underwear with an M on the end. Okay. Uh, okay. I did bring this out. I was going to read this out. But it was... Um, I was going to read this out. I'll probably read it out again. Again this afternoon. Because this is one of the very powerful little suttas. And it was... How to get enlightened without doing anything. From the Anguta and Nikaya, the tens... No will needed. Yeah, I should have done this earlier, but never mind. One who is virtuous does not need to generate will. Let me be free from regret. It is natural, Dhammata, that one who is virtuous becomes free from regret. There's no reason for regret to arise. When one is free from regret, when one does not need to generate will, let me be happy. It is natural that one who is free from regret becomes happy. When one is happy, one does not need to generate the will, let me be joyful. It is natural that one who is happy becomes joyful. When one is joyful, one does not need to generate the will, let me be tranquil. It is natural that one who is joyful becomes tranquil. You don't need anything. You're at peace. Hey, just go. When one is tranquil, one does not need to generate will. Let me feel mental pleasure. It is natural that one who is tranquil experiences mental pleasure. When one experiences mental pleasure, one does not need to generate the will. Let me enter jhana. It is natural that one who experiences mental pleasure enters jhana. Sukhinojitang samadhyati, the Buddha kept on saying. Now this is where it gets powerful. The early ones you think, obviously. But if you are, have mental pleasures and you are tranquil, you enter jhana. You can't not do it. It's a natural progression. This is now about uh, insight. When one has experienced jhana, one does not need to generate the will, let me see things as they really are. It is natural. The one who has experienced jhana will see things as they truly are. When one sees things as they really are, one does not need uh, to generate the will. Let me experience this nibbida, this is turning away from things and fading away, things vanishing, disappearing. It is natural that one who sees things as they truly are uh, experiences turning away from the world and fading away. And when one experiences turning away from the world and fading away, one does not need to generate the will, let me realize Nibbana. It is natural that one who experiences turning away and fading away realizes enlightenment. This was one, one this was Sutta. I'm translating it really accurately. This is a natural process. And you just, you can't resist it. I read it out in a couple of minutes. It takes much longer than that in real life, but still, cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. The longer you practice like this, the more peaceful your meditation will become. And you won't just meditate because of trying to get something. 
you meditate, it becomes, it becomes quite natural, just like eating. You feel hungry in your tummy, you want to eat. You feel a similar type of hunger in your emotional world, and you want to find some peace. Meditate. And when you meditate, it's quite natural, after a while that meditation will just turn into jhana. Your um, lotus flower will open up. It opens up by itself. The longer you sit, the more you practice with mindfulness and kindness, kindfulness, it opens up. And when it opens up, you just see things as they truly are, where real beauty, compassion, freedom actually lie. And when that happens, seeing things as they really are, some of the other things in the world you turn away from. They disappear. And as they disappear bit by bit, quite naturally, enlightenment appears. I never said before what's in the middle of the lotus. What's the jewel in the heart of the lotus? Correct. <laughs> That's the emptiness, the nothing. Amazing when you've got nothing to protect, nothing more to gain, nothing can be lost, nothing required. It's a kind of deep freedom, deep peace. Okay, I've gone on a really long. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okie dokie.